We have come to the end of the book of Genesis, which is really, in a lot of ways, the prelude to the book of Exodus, which exists to set up the whole Old Testament, which was there, the Bible tells us, to point to Jesus Christ, who then established the church so that we could do his ministry. And we're here awaiting the return of the Lord. So when we say Genesis is only the beginning, it's absolutely the case. But isn't that interesting that that's how the Bible flows? You start out, oh, I'm coming to the end of the book. I guess that'll be, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, no, that doesn't come till the very, very end. And it hasn't happened in history yet. And this is actually one of the confusing and sometimes troubling things about life in general is that we treat our lives or like to imagine our lives like a story. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. There's rising action, there's a climax, and there's falling action. That's how movies are made. That's how biographies are written. You watch the story, and it all comes to a very satisfying conclusion. But you know that that's not how life really works. You don't look back and go, well, that was the beginning of my story. You could go back as far as you want to tell the beginning of your story. And even so, rarely when you come to the end of your life, does a person say, I can see the, the narrative and the trajectory of how it was always going, very often death, death feels like an interruption. It was like we didn't get to do half the things that we wanted to do or say the things that we wanted to say. And this is what I'm going to call tonight living in the middle. That's what life is. We live in the middle of what God is doing. Adam and Eve did not even really see the beginning of what God was going to do. And he's certainly not done with what he's going to do. But we have these lives that are snippets clipped out of the middle of history. And this is the confusion that has been wrought by sin and wrought by death. It was never what God intended, as we've seen already. But the good news is that confusion can be transcended by faith. When you know that you're in the middle of the story, and that all the things you fought for, and are working for, and are living for, are going to outlive you, and you're not going to get a chance to accomplish all the things you wanted. Faith allows us to live past that. And the patriarchs in this story set us a remarkable example of how we must live, looking back at what God has done, looking forward by faith to what he's going to do, but going through what you could call the messy middle by faith. 2 Corinthians 5-7 tells us that we walk By faith, not by sight. The problem is you've got two eyes in front of your head and you see a lot. And the eyes of faith take a little more learning to open up. But the Lord wants to teach us how to live that way. So tonight, it's a long section. There's a lot of background information. I hope it's interesting for you. I thought it was very interesting. But that's going to be our through line as we go through is the way that Jacob and Joseph greet death is a wonderful example for us as Christians who have to live in the middle. So let's read, we're actually just going to read the whole first chapter, 48, and then we will back up and and take a look. And it'll be a little slower through chapter 49. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, 
Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Okay, so it's one scene. It's kind of long, but it's, it's not too hard to get a sense for it here. It's been 17 years since Jacob came to Egypt. Jacob was 130. He is 147 at this point. He's failing. His health is failing. You can imagine Joseph most likely did not live in Goshen with his family because he was managing all of Pharaoh's affairs. So he didn't get to see his father perhaps as often as he would have liked. But when he finds out that he is coming to the end, he takes his sons and goes. And this is a familiar scene. We, we've seen this with Isaac blessing what he thought was Esau, but was actually Jacob. He also was failing in his sight. There's a parallel there. This is what was done. We have wills, right? We have paper. We're very formal with these things. And we've discussed already at this point in history, the blessing that a father pronounced on a son was considered legally and spiritually binding. So that's why Jacob couldn't just say, oh, that blessing didn't count. Or Isaac couldn't say, that blessing didn't count. Let's try it again with Esau. 
There's a very official thing going on here. And he begins by saying all that El Shaddai, in verse 3 he says, God Almighty, that's the Hebrew, El Shaddai, had done for him when he appeared at Luz, which is Bethel. He's remembering the promises that God made him, that I'll make you a multitude and they will inherit this land. And that really is going to become the main theme of the rest of the Pentateuch, up to Deuteronomy, even into Joshua, of Israel going to claim the promised land. And Joshua will be about them taking possession of that promised land. And then the Old Testament will be a tragic story of them losing the promised land and then beginning to regain it. And he essentially here adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, which is why I say these are my sons. The point he's making there is they are going to be treated as if they were my heirs, not Joseph's heirs. What he's doing is he's giving Joseph a double portion. So whereas Joseph before would have gotten a single portion as one of the 12 sons, now Ephraim and Manasseh will each receive one portion. So Joseph is getting double what his brothers are going to get. He's still his dad's favorite son. This is also why in your Bible, you never really hear of the tribe of Joseph. You are the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Benjamin. You're going to hear tribe of Joseph. You'll hear the tribe of Manasseh or the tribe of Ephraim. And he puts the blessing on the two boys. And it's important to note that in these chapters here, the promise that was given to Abraham that his son would bless all the nations, the messianic promise, which was passed to Isaac and then was passed to Jacob, is now being spread among all 12 of these children, really 13 if you count Joseph twice. So we're no longer going to have a single patriarch that we're going to follow. We're going to follow the nation named after their father, Israel, the children of Israel. And now, Joseph he knows his dad is old and can't see very well, so he steers the two boys who are probably, they're grown men at this point. These are adult men, but they were younger than 147, so he calls them boys, right? Your grandpa called you boy until, you know, you were, maybe still calls you boy and you're all grown now, so I know mine does. So he steers them right in, right in front so that he just has to stretch out his hands, his right hand will be on Manasseh, and he crosses his hands over. And Joseph is like, uh, Dad, no, 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 this way. This is the oldest. I, I know, I know, right? He says, I know, but the Lord is telling me that Ephraim will be the one who is to be greater than his brother. And this just pleased Joseph because very similar to how it was until not too long ago in our own society that the oldest son was the one that received the inheritance or a greater share of the inheritance. Later on, Jacob is absolutely correct. Ephraim is going to be the dominant nation, not only between Manasseh and Ephraim, but the entire northern kingdom. When the kingdoms separate, the southern kingdom will be known as Judah, which is the dominant tribe, and the northern kingdom will be known as Israel or Samaria, which was their capital city, or Ephraim is the other most common name. Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. In addition, by the way, there's this little note that I don't think we have a whole lot of time to get into, but he says, I'm going to give you this double portion. I'm also going to give you one extra piece of land. He says in verse 22, one more mountain slope. Now, this is the Hebrew word Shechem. Shechem is how you'd pronounce it. And it actually means shoulder. And the word shoulder and slope are related to one another because your shoulder kind of slopes down. So this is where you get like a mountain slope or a hill. Now, when did Jacob fight with sword and bow to claim a mountain slope? It's not recorded in the book of Genesis, unless he's talking here about when Simeon and Levi sacked the city of Shechem and took possession of that. Although that's always 
portrayed as a negative thing. It would be very interesting if he's saying, I'm going to give you Shechem. And then in Joshua 24, it says they're going to bury Joseph in a place called Shechem, which he had bought from Hamor, which was the name of the, the king of that city of Shechem. So it's all kind of muddled and tied together, and the Bible doesn't really give us all the information to help us smooth out the details. But it, it was an interesting note, I thought. And sometimes just doing a little word study, like how many times in the Bible does it say Shechem, and comparing them to one another raises some interesting questions. Could just very well be it was another hill that he fought for, and the Bible doesn't tell us that story. We were following Joseph through Egypt during all that time, remember. But he, he again confirms in verse 21, that God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He's saying the promised land will be possessed again by the children of Israel. Remember, this is the centerpiece. All throughout Exodus, every movie, Ten Commandments you've watched, they're always talking about the promised land, right? Well, this is where they're hammering the promise. You're going back. You're not going to be in Egypt forever. And it is interesting to me that God has made a pattern in the book of Genesis, of choosing the younger son above the older son. He chose Abel over Cain, and he ended up actually choosing Seth over Cain, who was even younger. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Joseph was chosen over all his brothers. And now Ephraim is being chosen over Manasseh. Later on, David will have lots of older brothers, and he will be the one chosen. And we've got to remind ourselves here because it helps us understand what's going on. Why did God pick Jacob and not Esau? It tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. It says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is such a fascinating thing to me, and I think that Jacob is trying to bring this back up. He's, he was told, the reason God picked Jacob and not Esau is because God says, I can. I want you to know that I am the one who chooses. The promise is not in your hands to fulfill, it is mine. Therefore, I'm going to do something wild, such as the first time we have two sons to choose from, I'm going to pick the younger one. And then now, Jacob himself chooses to bless the younger above the older. I believe Jacob is remembering this fact, and he is choosing Ephraim to assert his trust in God's sovereignty. He's saying, God is the one that's going to do this, not us. It's not going to happen our way. It's not going to be happening because we're so great, and we're doing it just like everybody else. Our God is the one that does crazy things, like choosing the younger instead of the older. He's going to do something crazy like getting us out of Egypt and putting us back in the promised land. He's an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. It's an act of faith that that sovereign God, the one who chooses, will keep his promise. And there's a prophetic element here, too, that Ephraim would become the greater one. Just like I think it's fair to assume that God knew what kind of person Jacob would grow to be and what kind of person Esau would grow to be, although they were both rotten and, and God literally had to pin Jacob down to get him to live up to it, right? The whole point, though, is this is sovereignty. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 9, so that we can never say, well, it just happened naturally. It's like, no, our God, he chooses the younger, and sometimes he tells us you have too many people in your army, and... That's the God we serve. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? I love that. 
Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? This is a call to faith, this passage. So we got to know who this is in whom we're placing all this faith. Have faith in what? You know, people will say, oh, you just got to keep faith. And I often want to say, keep faith in what? That's maybe a very snarky thing to say, but it's still true. You just got to have faith. Have faith in what? Well, have faith that everything's going to work out. You have no reason to assume everything's going to work out. It might work out for you here in a very affluent country where people are generally kind and want to help you along. But I mean, go over to like Sudan or something and say, I just have faith. Everything's going to work out. Why? It depends on who your faith is in. Last week, we looked at testimonies, right? God had kept the promise before. I believe he's going to keep the next one. But now we're grounding even our testimonies in the fact that God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's good. He doesn't change. That's why I have faith. I don't have faith because I'm just an optimistic person and zippity-doo-dah, everything's going to be fine. I have faith because of the God whom I serve. doesn't matter if he picks the younger more than the older. doesn't matter if he does things way outside of our culture and what we're used to. He's the one in command. He's in sovereign control of history and destiny. He's able to work out his plans regardless of what men do, and that ought to build your faith. Because you don't want a God that's bound to your culture. Because your culture is about this big. It's a big world and it's a long timeline of history. We live life in the middle. But you know what? God sees the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. In fact, God declares the end from the beginning. We can't see what's around the next corner. God's up there in a helicopter saying, I can see the starting line and I can see the finish line. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next. So why not trust him, right? Dad, this isn't the way we do things. We don't bless the younger above the older. Jacob goes, our God chose me. I was the younger. So maybe you need to learn this lesson too, my son. God's not going to always do things your way. Well, let's move on now to chapter 49. And we're going to go much slower through this chapter because there's a lot of little sections here. I had a lot of fun putting this together. So hopefully I'll be able to get through all of it. Hope it whets your appetite to, to read the rest of your Bible. It says, Then Jacob called his sons together and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So he's blessed the sons of jo- Joseph in that intimate setting. Now he's going to call together all 12 of the patriarchs. He's going to bless them all. And these are not just blessings like Hallmark cards. Hope it all works out for you. There's prophecy at work here too. And the Bible, as we will see, is going to bear these things out. In fact, this is so prophetic and so accurate. People come along and they say, this had to have been written afterwards because there's no way he could have known. And so people will say things like, well, we know that the Bible, the book of Genesis was written by four different authors. Why is that? Well, obviously you could only write chapter 49 if you knew what was going to happen. Well, the author did. His name is the Lord. The Holy Spirit knew what was going to happen. If you don't believe in prophecy, you have to kick it down the road, even though you have no evidence to the contrary. But since we believe in prophecy, we believe in a God who sees the end from the beginning, we have no problem reading this. So first of all, we're going to go one one tribe at a time here. Verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, 
Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So first we have Reuben. He says is the firstborn. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. It seems as though Reuben, as the typical firstborn, had lived up to that reputation. But he tells him, you will not have preeminence. It will not last long because you are unstable as water which is kind of what we saw of him as a leader, remember? He said, don't kill Joseph, throw him in the well. I'll, I'll sneak back and get him later. That's not a leader of a family, right? That's a coward, and that's how Joseph got sold off. And then later on when he says, Dad, I want to go get Simeon back and buy some more grain. He says, you can kill my sons if it doesn't work out. You know, it's what every grandpa wants to hear about their grandkids, right? <laughs> Unstable as water. And ultimately this is because back in chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben had an incestuous relationship with his father's concubine, essentially a wife, but not in the, in the legal sense, Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant. First Chronicles 5.1 tells us, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So, We're not going to hear of Reuben as the preeminent one again in Scripture, just as Jacob said. Reuben's tribe would end up settling on the eastern side of the Jordan River. There was a region called Gilead. We read about this in Numbers chapter 32. Just north of Moab along the Dead Sea, because they had a lot of flocks and herds, they saw that the land was good on that side, and they asked Moses if they could stay, and Joshua if they could stay. And they said, well, not if you're going to think you don't have to help us fight. And conquer the rest of it. And then they went back and they did, of course, help. And they ended up settling on what's called the Transjordan, which means on the other side of the Jordan. And that's where Reuben would settle. Moving on to verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Simeon and Levi are described together as violent, angry, fierce, cruel men. I've already referenced it in Genesis 34. Shechem, the prince of the city of Shechem, either raped or seduced their sister Dinah. Either way, it was shameful to the family. They said, oh, sure, you can marry her as long as everybody in your city is circumcised. They circumcised all the men. While the men were injured and in pain and unable to fight, they went into the city and they laid waste to it. And so for that reason, they both will be scattered, it said, in the land of Israel. They also lose the birthright. Was Reuben's, would have been Simeon's, Would have been Levi's as two and three, but they're not going to get it either because of this. Joshua 19.9 tells us that that's exactly what happened. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So Simeon, the, the tribe of Simeon, had no recognizable territory. You couldn't say you're now entering the land of Simeon. Instead, they mingled in with those of the tribe of Judah, which was down in the southern portion of the land of Israel, what we know today as Judea in the New Testament or even Israel today. They were scattered. There was no place where you could say this is where Simeon lives. 
Then you have Levi. Levi, as a tribe, it was Moses' tribe. They would redeem themselves a little bit at Mount Sinai because when Moses came down from getting the Ten Commandments, the people were worshiping the golden calf. They were having a worshipful orgy, if you read about it. It's actually kind of a sick thing. And, you know, you watch the movie and Moses comes down and everybody panics. That's not what happened. Moses went down and people were like, we're not listening to you anymore, pal. So it said Moses put out a call and said, who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi came over to him. And they went out and put a violent, bloody end to that party around the golden calf. They killed 3,000 people that day in Exodus 32. And for that, the Lord would say, I'm going to redeem you to be priests and servants in the tabernacle and the temple, which is why you hear about the Levites working in the tabernacle. Although they would also remain scattered in the land, they would not have a territory of their own. Deuteronomy 10 verses 8 and 9 sums it up real nice. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. So the Levites, according to Numbers 35, had a few isolated cities, but they had no allotted territory. The Levites were scattered throughout the land. And you could say that was a blessing because they got to serve the Lord. But in a way, it was still a punishment because they're not going to ever have that preeminence that the other tribes did. So Levi redeemed himself a little bit. Simeon did not. And again, maybe that's why Joseph locked up Simeon when he had to lock up one guy. Maybe Simeon was the ringleader as far as the fierce, violent, cruel people. We don't know. But let's move on. Verse 8, this is the most significant one and where we'll spend most of our time. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Underline this verse, will you? Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So we have Judah, the fourth son, the, the next one who did not forfeit his birthright. So, supposed to be Reuben. Nope. Simeon. Nope. Levi. Nope. All right. We've made it to Judah. Although, as we know, Joseph is the one that's being given the double portion. It is Judah who is going to become the leader of the tribes of Israel. In fact, we've already seen him exercise that a little bit in the, among the brothers. He had that terrible episode with, with Tamar, with his daughter-in-law. But he's the only one, of all the rotten things that the tribes of Israel did, he's the only one that repented. Which tells us something about our Lord, doesn't it? He's a big fan of repentance and second chances. So while Jacob is blessing Joseph with the double portion, Judah will take leadership. First Chronicles 5 verse 2 says, Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So it's almost a technicality, right? Joseph got more land, Joseph got more blessing, but Judah's going to be king. He actually begins this with a pun on the name of Judah. The, the name Judah, Yehuda means praise. So 
Oh, praise, your brothers shall praise you. He's tying these things together. And he compares them to a lion, which is going to be important. Verse 10 is one of the most significant verses in this book. And it's repeated later in the Old Testament. I'll get to it in a minute. That Judah is going to be king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And we know that David was of the tribe of Judah, as was Solomon and all their children. In the northern kingdom, the dynasties would shift and change in different tribes. In the south, it remained Judah. In fact, the southern kingdom was called Judah. Only the scattered Levites, or some of them, the Simeonites, remember, were part of the territory of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin would remain loyal to the southern kingdom. The rest of them would go with the north. Their border would extend on the southernmost part of Israel, from the Negev desert all the way up to about the northern edge of the Dead Sea. And Judah would actually last longer than the northern kingdom until they are exiled in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Then they will return from Persia, and when they come back from Persia, they are called for the first time Jews, which sounds like Judah, because they go to a foreign land, well, what are you? I'm from Judah. You're a, a Jew what? We're just going to call you Jews. And then the name has stuck. And I'm kind of joking, but that's actually kind of what happened. Now he says, you will be the king. How long? At the end of verse 10, we got this really fascinating little phrase. The ESV translates it, the, the ruler, staff, the scepter shall not depart until tribute comes to him. But this is a tricky verse because literally what it says is until Shiloh comes to him. Now, Shiloh means, is, is a word that comes from the word meaning rest or tranquility. So you could translate it until rest comes to him. But more often than not, Shiloh, and in fact, I think exclusively, refers to a place. It was the first place where the tabernacle was established before Jerusalem. So they come into the promised land. They pitch the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh until David conquers Jerusalem and they build the temple and they move all the things there, and that became the holy city. But this is unclear. Why are you using a place name here instead of the normal word for rest? There was a normal Hebrew word for rest. So, because it does not make a lot of sense, there are scholars that want to look at this a little differently. If you revocalize the word, you might not know this, that the Hebrew text is all consonants. Many hundreds of years later, some guys named the Masoretes, they were scribes, added vowels to beneath the consonants. So sometimes when you're going back and you're looking at it, you think, is there another way to revocalize, add different vowels to this word and make one that makes a little more sense? Very uncommon, but it does happen. And the reason we do that is when you look at the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, and actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew we have is older than the oldest Hebrew copies we have. They translate it and says, until he whose it is comes to him. So the scepter shall not depart until the one comes who deserves the scepter. So you, you've got these options until Shiloh comes. And if you put that, you, you really don't really know what it means. You're just doing it literally. You can revocalize it and say until tribute comes to him. Or you can what's called emend it, which means go with what the Greek says, even though we don't have it in the Hebrew, and say until he whose it is. These are the kinds of things that we worry about. But you can see, I hope, that... They all basically mean the same thing. If Shiloh, by that meaning rest or tranquility, 
That would refer to the consolidation of a kingdom. Until tribute comes, again, refers to the consolidation of a kingdom. And until he whose it is, until the real king comes, again, consolidation of the kingdom. It all means the same thing. We're just not quite sure what it means. And there are those that have made a big deal out of the old King James saying Shiloh and calling it a messianic title. Maybe, but we really don't know why it says Shiloh, which is why the original English translators just left it. Sometimes we do that. But all of this indicates that there will be a king in Judah and there will be the consummation of that kingdom. There will be a day until all the peoples will come to the king of Judah. This is an obvious messianic reference. It's a reference to the Messiah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute he whose it is, Shiloh, comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We know in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David something very similar. He said, your son will sit on the throne forever. You'll never lack a son to sit on the throne before me. Very clear reference, I think, back to this passage. Well, you've got to know the whole Bible. Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen. right after the exile, as the line of kings was being broken, Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. But we say, wait a minute, Zedekiah was the last king in Judah, and there was no king after him. Well, the Lord foresaw that too. Ezekiel, who prophesied from exile in Babylon, said in chapter 21, You profane wicked one, you prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. Thus says the Lord, hear this now, remove the turban and take off the crown. These things shall not remain as they are. Exile that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Did you catch that? I'm about to destroy your kingdom. Give me back that crown. I'll hold on to this until the one comes who deserves it. That's a pretty exciting prophecy, isn't it? Because that's exactly what happened. There has been no king in Israel except for the Hasmoneans who were illegitimate because they were not of the tribe of Judah. But it goes right back here to chapter 49. He says, you're, you're never going to lose the scepter until the right king comes. And that's exactly what Ezekiel prophesied as well. God foretold and doubled down that Judah would have a son who would be king. And this is where you get the name Messiah, the anointed one. We're waiting for that king. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ is that king. He'll reign for a thousand years. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for him to come and take the crown that is rightfully his. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, John writes, one of the elders said to me, weep no more for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he sees Jesus crowned there. He says, weep no more. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, what is that a reference to? Right here in Genesis 49. He says in verse nine, you are a lion. And in verse 10, you will be king. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Also, the root of David. That's a reference to other prophets where it said, the tree will be cut down, but the root will remain. And there will be a new tree that comes out of it. So he's saying, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is our reminder 
from chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. And if that's not enough to convince you, look at verse 11 and think of Jesus while you read this. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What did Jesus say? My father is the vine dresser, you are the branches, and I am the what? I am the vine. And what did Jesus ride into Jerusalem when they first heralded him as king? The foal of a donkey. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Washed his garments in blood. Isn't that what Jesus did at the cross? He washed himself in the, in the blood and in the end when Jesus returns, it says his garments will be dipped in blood in Revelation 19. This prophecy will be fulfilled in full when Jesus returns for the second time. The lion of the tribe of Judah. So this promise made here, this old man sitting in a nice retirement home in Egypt, blessing his son, saying, there will always be a king to come from you. And then he says some weird stuff about a vine and a donkey that nobody's quite sure what he's talking about, and a lion. But then in Revelation 19, the heavens open up, and down comes Jesus Christ to claim his throne. It's pretty radical, isn't it? I love that. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Can't you see how important it is to know the beginning? Because when you get to the end, it's still referring back to the beginning. The New Testament assumes that you've got a working knowledge of the Old Testament, which is why we take our time to go through it. Well, let's move on. Zebulun. Less exciting than Judah, but still pretty cool. Zebulun. This is interesting because he goes out of order. Zebulun was the sixth son of Leah, but he's listed here fifth. I don't know if there's any meaning for that, but it is something to note. He prophesies in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. So he prophesies Zebulun will be a seafarer, which we know historically they were. He says, your border will be at Sidon. This is not the city of Sidon itself. This is the territory of Sidon, which was a Phoenician city-state. The Phoenicians were the traders, the merchants of the day. They were the first ones to sail around Africa and develop those trade routes. And so it seems Zebulun filled that void for Israel. And they were up in the north. Their territory was adjacent, as I said. Now, here's something interesting. Nazareth was in Zebulun's territory. So that's Galilee here. Jesus grew up in the territory of Zebulun, which is why Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Contempt. When's the last time you, you talked about Naphtali, right? But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's that prophecy, that in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, known by later times as Galilee, is where the light would shine. And that's where Jesus did all his ministry. This was Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees because in John 7, 52, they said, there's never been a prophet out of Galilee and there never will be. And then in John 8, verse 12, Jesus, the next time he talks to him, says, I am the light of the world, which is a reference to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus was kind of spunky, wasn't he? 
Verse 14 now, moving on. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Issachar is the fifth son of Leah, so the last true-born son of Leah in this list. And Jacob prophesies that they're going to be hard workers and even mentions, mentions forced labor here. And it's not clear if this is supposed to be positive or negative. Is he saying that y'all are hard workers and you're going to do everything you need to do? You're not going to look for help from anybody? Or is he saying y'all are going to be oppressed and put to hard labor? We don't give any further information on this. And the rest of the Bible doesn't answer that question. Their territory was directly south of Zebulun's in the same area, just south of the Sea of Galilee. And the only real important reference to Issachar is later. It says there were some sons of Issachar who understood the times. Apparently there was a tradition of wisdom in Issachar. Let's keep going. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So this is Dan. This is Bilhah's first son. And his name means judge. So Dan shall judge his people. Judge shall judge his people. Similar to what we saw with Judah. Now he's promised that you're going to be important. You're going to judge the people. But also as having a kind of treacherous character. You're, you're like a serpent waiting by the way to bite somebody's heel. The horse's heel so that the rider falls backwards. Dan's territory was north of Judah. It was on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And in Judges 18, the tribe of Dan is going to commit a terrible sin. There was a man named Micah, not the prophet Micah, but a man named Micah who had a carved image in his house. He had a a crafted image, a, a cast metal image in his house. He had a Levite there, and he had this sort of you know, one-stop religious shop along the way. If you're out here and you don't want to go to the tabernacle, come here and you can worship these, these idols. Well, the tribe of Dan moves through. Their army takes all these guys' false gods to worship for themselves. And then when this guy gets mad and wants to stop them, they laid waste and destroyed the whole city of Laish and rebuilt it and named it Dan. So they not only were guilty of introducing idolatry on a wide scale to the land of Israel, they also made warfare against their own brothers. And this is why I think there are differences of opinion. In Revelation chapter 7, when it's listing all the tribes of Israel that will be sealed, Dan is not listed. And it is perhaps that idolatry that excluded them. That seems to be what Jacob prophesied. He says, you're going to be a great tribe, you're going to do well for yourselves, but you're going to be a treacherous people, which is what they were. Well, we go on now, verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad is the first son of Zilpah, another one of the handmaidens. He has a name that sounds like the word for raid or raider, so you've got another pun going on here. We, we think of puns in English as kind of immature and silly. You know, it's, it's like a dad joke to, you know, play with words that sound like each other. It was taken very seriously and developed into an art form in the Hebrew language. A lot of these prophecies are related to the words that sound alike to one another. And this is where we get Gad. Reuben and Gad would settle across the Jordan in Gilead. So they were north of Reuben. Because they were not across the Jordan and because they were essentially ranchers, they had lots of livestock, they were in a prime spot for raiders to attack them. 
because they didn't have the river to protect them. But Jacob promises that you are going to stand against them. You're not going to get pushed around. Next, we have verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. This is Zilpah's second son. Asher, name means happy. Very simple. You're going to have productive fields. You have rich food. You're going to, you're going to create food that come out of the land of Asher, fit for a king. And they would settle far to the north. They'd be along the coastline next to Zebulun, next to Naphtali. That's Asher. The only real significant reference to that, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is brought to the temple, we meet the prophetess Anna, who is of the tribe of Asher. Which is interesting, because Asher had been carried away in the exile to Assyria and never heard from again. Which means that Anna was descended from a tribe of Asher that had stayed faithful to the line of David and not abandoned the Lord. So that certainly would fit what we know of her character. But other than that, not a whole lot to know about Asher. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtali is Bilhah's second son. And this blessing is really difficult to decipher in the Hebrew. But again, it's another one of those, however you decide to choose, it's going to mean about the same thing. Either he says, you are a doe who bears beautiful fawns, or you are a doe that speaks beautiful words. It really amounts to the same thing. It's very nice. The only big story we get from Naphtali is in Judges chapter 4, you maybe know the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah was the prophetess who called Barak to lead the people into battle. He was of the tribe of Naphtali. And the only other tribe he could get to go with him was Zebulun. But you remember, those were the two tribes that were, they were in contempt. Nobody really thought much of them. And that whole story is meant to shame the larger tribes of Israel. It's supposed to be shameful that they needed Deborah, the woman, to be there, that the men needed her. It's supposed to be shameful that the stronger tribes had to be fought for by Naphtali and by Zebulun. Very interesting story that we'll get to in, in due time. But Naphtali, had, they had far northern tor- territory as well, and they were included in that Galilean prophecy from Isaiah 9 that I read before. Then verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Okay, Joseph. We've already seen him. This is not adding anything new, really. He's giving a word of praise for the shepherd. Very interesting. The Lord is called the shepherd several times in this passage, long before Psalm 23. So maybe it was a familiar image for David when he penned that psalm. He makes reference to the archers who attacked him. This is probably a reference to his brothers who all came after him. But I mean, everybody was after Joseph his whole life, so it could refer to any of that. He receives a double portion. He's very fruitful in the land. You can still see that his father favors him. So Manasseh as a tribe will be split in two. You'll often see references in the Bible to half the tribe of Manasseh. You had East Manasseh that settled on the Gilead side of the Jordan River and West Manasseh that settled on the western side. 
And then directly south of West Manasseh, you had the tribe of Ephraim, which is where Samaria would be. And Ephraim would lead the nation more or less as a northern kingdom. And they would host the Sumerian kings in their territory until 722 BC when Assyria carried them away. And most of those tribes, especially the ones of Joseph, would not retain their ethnic identity because Assyria's plan was to take people from all over the world and mix them together so that they would intermarry and have children and lose that racial identity that could bind them together to resist him. So this gave rise to what we call in the New Testament Samaritans. And as we know from John 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But that is a long way away at this point. And probably lucky for Jacob, he didn't live to see it. Lastly here, we have Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Benjamin would indeed have a fierce reputation. In the Bible, there's a lot of really cool stories about the tribe of Benjamin coming to battle. They were the one tribe that stayed loyal to Rehoboam in the south. Again, Simeon had kind of assimilated into Judah and the Levites were scattered all over. Benjamin was the one tribe that stayed loyal and their territory was just north of the Dead Sea. The most significant descendant of the tribe of Benjamin wrote most of your New Testament. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 5 says that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. So thank you, Benjamin. Appreciate it. Well, those are the 12 tribes of Israel. I hope you can see the foreshadowing here, how the prophecy nailed it, which is, if it's true prophecy, it's exactly what we should believe. And I hope that you'll go back and take the time to chase some of these things down because it's a big time faith builder and it'll stretch your knowledge of the Bible, maybe in some areas where you're not accustomed to reading. The most important thing I think that you grab from this, of course, is the prophecy of the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because in all these stories of Joseph and Jacob and Isaac, we may have lost sight of what Genesis 3.15 promised, that there would be a son of the woman who'd crush the head of the serpent. God's not lost sight of that. And God is still working to bring that about. We live in the middle. We lose the big picture. God doesn't. Aren't you glad about that? Let's finish off this chapter here and we'll go much faster to the end. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. These are the last words of Jacob. A request to be buried in the promised land. More faith. You'll remember from chapter 23, hopefully, Abraham bought the cave in Machpelah from the Hittites to bury Sarah. This was a big deal because it was the first piece of land in Canaan that was owned by Abraham and his family, the cave at Machpelah. Abraham and Sarah were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there too. And he says here that Leah was buried there, not Rachel. We already saw last chapter, Rachel was buried in Ephrathah, which is near Bethlehem. 
And we might ask ourselves, why? Rachel was Jacob's true love. Rachel was the one he worked for. He got tricked into marrying Leah. Do you remember that? And it could be insignificant, right? It could just be that they needed to bury her soon and they couldn't get her to Machpelah, but I don't know. Jacob obviously still loved her. It could have been a recognition that Leah was the better choice for his long life. You know, you can fall in love with somebody when you're young and everybody around you is telling you, I don't think she's good for you, bro. You don't know her like I know her. I know she's a jerk to everybody else, but I see the sweet side. And, you know, you've heard that all before. I'm not going to cast aspersions on Rachel, but she sure didn't make life easy for Jacob as we went through that story. Perhaps God knew what he was doing in 29-25 when he did the old switcheroo with Laban. Maybe we shouldn't draw too much out of it, but it is something to see that Jacob is going to be buried in Machpelah with Leah, not Rachel. Right now, the big point to get from this is that cave was all they owned in the promised land. And Jacob had enough faith that God would continue the story even after he was gone. He entrusted himself to God freely in faith at the end. He's not panicking. You got to get me there before I die. He goes, God's going to handle this. I'm going to trust you boys to take care of it. Jacob, the neurotic, sneaky trickster, has become a man of profound faith in the Lord his God. All these things are against me, he said. But now he's, he's ready to go. Very often we feel more like young Jacob, the one that was sneaking around and lying and couldn't get a break. But I think we all ought to aspire to be like Jacob was in his old age. Are you able to accept even death, knowing that God is sovereign? that he keeps his promises and that you're living your life in the middle and that your end is not the end. Oh, it's all over. Jacob's like, no, it's not. It's going to keep going even without me here. And I trust that God's going to take care of it. Let's get into chapter 50 now. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return." And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Jacob, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded him. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, Joseph obviously mourns for his father, and he gives him a king's burial. He asked him to embalm his father. This is mummification. Maybe you remember that from your world history class. It's another one of those notes that makes us realize they were actually in Egypt. Because this is what went down in Egypt. That they would prepare the body for burial. They'd wrap them up like that. They'd put them in those really elaborate sarcophagi. And he gives them a national season of mourning. Zaphonat Panea's father is dead. And for 70 days, they mourned for him. Why does that matter? Because Pharaoh's death required 72 days of mourning. So this is right up to what the king of Egypt would be mourned for. And Pharaoh gives him permission to bury Jacob. He sends him an escort. There's a state funeral for Jacob. Everyone from the court goes, and they all mourn for him. It's unclear exactly where the threshing floor of Atad is. It says beyond the Jordan, which usually means east of the Jordan, but that doesn't seem likely. Why would they go all the way around? That, that word can be used a little more broadly. I'm inclined to think that was their first stop in the promised land itself. When they first went into Canaan, that's when they began the formal mourning, a week of mourning. And it caused the people to rename it Abel Mizraim. Abel means mourning or sorrow, and Mizraim is Egypt. We call it Egypt because that's what the Greeks called it, but they called themselves the Mizraim. And Jacob is laid to rest. Here's something to think about. Imagine going into the cave at Machpelah. You have the bound burial cloths for Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, and right next to all that is slid in one of those gorgeous, elaborate sarcophagus that Jacob is buried in. Isn't that remarkable to think about? The Lord has blessed his patriarchs. How far they've come from Abraham coming in with nothing. The Lord had told Jacob in Genesis 46, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down for, to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. God kept his word. He honored Jacob's faith. For all of Jacob's mistakes, he finished well. Isn't that what we all want? To be able to look back and look at a bunch of things that we regret, but like Paul says, I finished the race. I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. And Jacob, for all of craziness, finished well. Verses 15 through 21 now. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And these guys still have a guilty conscience after all this time. And they do one more scheme to save themselves. 
you know, dad had a last request. It was that you would forgive us. And they bow down to Joseph, just like it had been prophesied in chapter 37. They bowed down again. But Joseph weeps. And I could talk about this here, but, you know, it's, we talk a lot about forgiving people. There's also something to be said for receiving the forgiveness of somebody and making sure they know that you have forgiven them and not let them be strung along in their guilt. Because we like to do that, don't we? Like, oh, you're sorry. Let's see how sorry you are. I'm never going to let you forget what you've done. I forgive you, but I don't forget. Joseph wept. Because you know what happens when you do that? He realizes that for these 17 years, he thought he had reunited with his brothers and they were right on and they were right where they needed to be. And all this time, they were afraid that he was still mad and they were not having honest conversations with one another. And it broke his heart. Don't do this to each other. If somebody asks for your forgiveness, give it to them in such a way that they cannot be mistaken. And if somebody offers you forgiveness, don't suspect them. I'll bet you they're not over it, though. i got to do something else. You're insulting that person when you do that. He says, guys, I'm not, I'm not Esau. I'm not waiting for dad to die so that I can get you. I'm going to take good care of you. He said, God used me, used what you did to save all these people through the famine. So how could I be mad? Life is lived in the middle. It doesn't move from one scene to the next doesn't end when a great man dies or begin when a great man is born. That's how, how books and movies are written. Life moves on without concern for you or for me. And sometimes you can find yourself thrust into the position with the responsibility that you were counting on somebody else to take. Dad kept the peace in the family. Now dad's gone. What's going to happen? We can be put in those positions too. You were counting on somebody else and now life has moved on without asking your permission and it's up to you. You can choose in that moment to live in faith or to live in fear and sin and selfishness. But Joseph has learned well. He's learned the lesson. He's learned what it means to trust God. He's learned how to forgive. He does not dare to take the place of God and judge his brothers, even though they were guilty. Oh, there's so much to be drawn out of this, isn't there? Well, I don't want to judge you, but look what you did. Joseph goes, I'm not God. I'm not about to judge you. That teaching that Jesus gave, judge not lest you be judged, that stretches all the way back, doesn't it? And there's these three attitudes of Joseph I want to get into here. One of the commentators I used was a man named Derek Kidner. And he gave this outstanding summary of what it means to have Christ-like character like Joseph. So I'm going to run through these because they're, they're so good. What does it mean to be like Joseph and thereby to be like Christ? It means, number one, You leave all the writing of your wrongs to God. I'm going to fix this and make it right. You trust that God's going to handle that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Well, we think vengeance. I'm not going to hunt anybody down and kill nobody. You can take small, petty little vengeance on people. But if you feel like you've been slighted, well, this was evil. This was wrong. I, ha- I have a responsibility to take vengeance. No, you have a responsibility to show grace Amen. and trust that God is going to right that wrong. Number two, to have Christ-like character like Joseph did, you see God's providence in man's malice. Even when people do wicked things to you, you think, how is God at work right now? 
Even David, who wrote all those imprecatory psalms, all those, get them, Lord, break their teeth, Lord. When he was being ousted from his own throne, they were walking down the road, and there was a man named Shimei, who had been a supporter of King Saul. And he sees David, oh, look at the big bad king now. And he starts throwing rocks at him and cussing at him and yelling and mocking. And one of David's soldiers said, I'm going to go bring you his head, David. David goes, no, maybe the Lord inspired him to do that. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, it says that if the demons, the principalities and powers, had known what the crucifixion of Jesus would mean, they never would have done it. If they knew they were offering the sacrifice that was going to separate them from God forever, they would never have done it. Even in the worst acts of man, there can be the sovereignty of God, so we must not be judgmental of one another. And number three, to have a Christ-like character like Joseph, you repay evil not only with forgiveness, but with genuine affection. Well, I'll forgive him, but that doesn't mean i got to like him. Oh, really? What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, love your family, love your friends, and hate your enemies. Here's what I say. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who mistreat you. Pray for those who abuse you. Rejoice when they persecute you. Y'all, that's like the first lesson we learned as baby Christians. And we still haven't figured it out. You've got to constantly be coming to them. Don't you know what they did? He said, I'm supposed to love them. I'm supposed to pray for them. I'm supposed to do good to them. I'm not supposed to hold on to stuff and hold it over their head to get them to do what I want them to do. I want to see them grovel on the floor before me, begging for forgiveness. Joseph wept when they came and asked one more time. Boys, we're already through this. If you want to live this way, and you must live this way. Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brothers, I'm not going to forgive you. If you want to live that way, you've got to acknowledge what we've been saying all along tonight. God knows what he's doing. You are not him. And that he is more fair and more kind than you. Hasn't the book of Genesis taught us that God is able to work through our own sins and shortcomings? He keeps using all these horrible people. And we say, Lord, how could you use them? And God goes, here's a question. How could I possibly use you? How can then we hold those same things against our brothers? It is up to us to stop that cycle. And Joseph finally did. These patriarchs have not been great guys. But Joseph is the one that finally puts on the brakes and says, enough, we're a family. And that's what we're supposed to do to one another in Christ. Amen? Let's finish it up. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph was 30 when he was raised up to Pharaoh's side. 17 when he'd been sold. 30 when he was exalted. There were seven good years of famine, and then his brothers showed up after two years of, or good years of plenty, and after two years, his brothers showed up, plus all the back and forth. So let's call it 40 years old when Jacob came to Egypt. Add 17 years to that. Joseph was 57 when Jacob died. 
And if he died at 110 years old, that means that after Jacob died, there was another 53 years. It's remarkable that in Egypt, their literature said that 110 years was the ideal blessed age to live. So God is not only blessing Joseph, he was communicating to the rest of Egypt, this is the guy. He knows the truth. He lived to see Ephraim's children of the third generation. That's either great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, depending on how you count that. Long outlived his sorrows. He'd had a hard 30 years, but man, he, he had another 80 years to go. And by saying to his brothers, take me back, probably not talking to the 11, but to the general, the family, the clan, right? And he makes the same request as his father. Bury me in the promised land. Joshua 24 says they buried him in Shechem, as we said. The same expression of faith that Jacob made. He believes that God is going to bring us out of this land, just like he promised Abraham in chapter 15, that we would go down into Egypt for 400 years and then come out. And the name of the next book is the Exodus, which means the going out. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. It was all by faith, believing that the story was not over yet. And then Joseph too is mummified, placed in an Egyptian tomb, and now it's up to his children. This is what our lives are. We look back, we look forward, we live in the middle. And you know what? In a way, that's the hardest place to be. Because we long for back in the day and I can see where the resolution was. Or we look forward to someday when there will be resolution. Now just seems so immediate. And it just kind of seems to be happening and there's no real flow here. That's really what Genesis is. We're done with Genesis. We've only just begun. We've got a whole lot more to go. We saw the problem start back in Eden. When they sinned and were driven out of paradise but the promised solution and the Savior who would come. We saw begin to make God make his moves. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now the nation of Israel. But, this, but it ends, and they're in Egypt. And we're still in sin. But they had faith that was going to have an end. What we learn from this is to look not to the world around us, but to the God who is above us. And it's only by resting in who God is, that, that sovereign, saving, promise-keeping God, that you can rest in the life that he's given to you. He wants you to live life abundantly, John said. Mark 6.34, Jesus said, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So that whole be in the moment thing, that, that Buddhism stole that from Jesus. He said it a long time ago, Focus on the day that's right in front of you and I'll take care of the rest. Except his is a better way because... The other way is just kind of sticking your head in the sand. This is a way of saying, I know that God's got the rest. I'm just going to handle what's right in front of me. We look back. We see that Jesus has paid for sins. We look forward. We know that Jesus is going to return and take that crown. But we're living in the middle. <laughs> the now and the not yet. But that's no reason to worry or get lazy. That's how we have to live until that final consummation. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah will come and we'll be forever with him. Hold on to that. Even if you've got to wait for your own bones to be buried like Jacob and Joseph, someday those bones will rise with Christ and you will be glorified with him. The serpent's head will have been crushed 
and he will be no more. And you know what? Things aren't going to go back to the way they were in Eden. They're going to be better. Because in Christ Jesus, everything gets better.